Chapter Eight of Clogshop Chronicles by John Ackworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For better, for worse. Part One: The Dilemma. Johnty Harrop, the minder, had got into difficulties, and although thereby he had demonstrated the sagacity and justified the prophecy of popular opinion in Beckside, this was not regarded as any palliation of his mistake. In fact from the senators of the clog-shop down to the frequenters of the bridge-inn, the verdict had been, sarve him reet. After the usual number of juvenile flirtations with the girls of the village, he had eventually turned his back on them all, and married a clough-ender. Now as clough-end was a very modern mill-village of no account whatever, but pretentious and aggressive, in inverse ratio to its importance, its sedate and elderly neighbour Beckside, had been compelled to treat it much as ancient jerusalem treated samaria and no cloughender was of any account in the older village but johnty's offence was aggravated by the fact that he was regarded as a very likely lad and somewhat of a plum in the marriage market so that feminine beckside was scandalised at his lack of taste and decency in passing by his own people moreover the elect lady was a renegade becksider she belonged to a poor but somewhat proud and ambitious family, which years ago had preferred Clough End to Beckside, which was, of course, an inexpiable offence. When she was a girl, Susie Stones and her elder sister had shown a decided aversion to going to the mill, and so the Stoneses, who were all supposed to be cursed with forced pride, removed to Clough End, where the daughters became dressmakers. Susie, the younger of these two, was undeniably pretty, a typical white-skinned, dark-eyed Lancashire lass. And whilst the Beckside girls felt that this gave a provoking justification to Johnty, the clough-end young men regarded him as an unscrupulous poacher. As a mule-minder, Johnty got good wages, and must have saved money, so that nobody was greatly surprised when he indulged a long-cherished purpose by taking the large four-room cottage next to Long Ben's, so that he could begin housekeeping in the same house his mother had done, and in the house wherein he himself was born, although according to current ideas it was much too large for a newly married couple. Johnty filled the house with new and stylish furniture, but when Mrs. Johnty arrived, she poured scorn on the chest of mahogany drawers with glass knobs, which her husband had bought with great pride, and insisted upon it being exchanged for a new-fangled thing called a sideboard. Every housewife in Beckside was outraged, for a chest of mahogany drawers, especially with the added and uncommon glory of glass knobs, was the last ambition of every wifely heart. Before feminine sentiment had got over this shock, it was passed round in tragic whispers that Sue Johnty had got a sewing machine, and though this was the very first article of the kind that had been seen in Beckside, and every woman in the place was dying to inspect it, yet only a few of the baser sort ever made the attempt, all the self-respecting ones feeling that they would be morally compromised if by any means they should appear to be countenancing such unheard-of extravagance. Very soon it became a fixed opinion in the village that Mrs. Johnty was a dressy, extravagant, wasteful woman, and for a time this was marrow and fatness to the minder. It was clearly a case in which envy was at work, and the implied compliment to his own judgment in selecting a partner, and to his wife's accomplishments greatly delighted him. 
whilst his wife's brightness and ability gave added zest to his pleasure and her utter unconsciousness of the sensation she was making gave piquancy to the whole situation the beckside women kept very much aloof from jaunty's wife but imitated her in their best bonnets and made their baby clothes as nearly like hers as possible whilst the men shook their heads over her finery expressed strong commiseration for jaunty but straightened themselves up whenever she passed them and followed her with unconcealable admiration in their eyes as long as she was in sight after a while however jaunty became uneasy the strict ideas of domestic economy which obtained in the village and in which he had been brought up slowly began to assert themselves and as his house became better furnished and his two children better clothed he began to seriously regret that he had commenced his married life by turning up practically all his wages to his wife according to well-established beckside usage having commenced however he found it difficult to stop especially as his wife was so manifestly proud of the confidence reposed in her and really gave him no opportunity of altering matters little by little also though he scarcely ever heard a word drop the very pronounced opinions of the villagers on the subject began to percolate somehow into jaunty's mind and very soon he suspected that the neighbours were on the lookout for an opportunity of discussing the matter with him which of course made him more anxious to avoid it about this time the mill began to run short time and jaunty took the news home to his wife with a heavy heart and was confirmed in his fears of his wife's unthriftiness by the light way in which she received the news "Ne'er mind lad she said it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good thou'll be able to tap me and the childer a walk a bit in the afternoons the next friday she brought him a fancy pipe and a quarter of scented tobacco from duxbury and poor jaunty though his heart was sad was so entirely under the influence of this little wife of his that at her bidding he smoked the new pipe and tobacco the same night feeling all the time as if it would choke him mule minding is piecework and so as she never thought of asking susie did not know exactly what her husband earned and the minder was strongly tempted to keep back more of his wages than he had previously done and save it up for the dark day he felt sure was coming but instead of doing so he went to the other extreme and gave her almost every farthing he earned to prevent her running into debt this meant pinching himself in twenty little ways and running up small scores at the clog shop and other places as was usual when work was not plentiful when he came in from his work one day about this time his wife held up her wee mouth and displayed two new false teeth poor jaunty it was so like this wife of his and they really did so effectually remove the only weak spot on her beautiful face that he hadn't the heart to say anything unkind about them but knowing what a buzz of tattle they would cause in the village false teeth being rare in beckside at that time he made a hasty tea and got out into the lanes to brood over his anxieties the minder realised that the time for action had arrived but how to act with the least possible disturbance was a problem that sorely perplexed him as he walked he thought and thought rapidly for him so that all unconsciously in crossing the padfoot fields he overtook two women lottie speck and an old flame of his martha royal martha was evidently excited about something and craning out her long lean neck 
she was saying to Lottie, "'And then gow plate on em, and they tell me who's in debt all o'er Duxbury.' Then she caught sight of Johnty, blushed as red as a peony, and began to talk loudly and excitedly about some totally different subject, in pretended obliviousness of his proximity. The minder passed them with a monosyllabic salutation, and turning at the first stile, took a shortcut for the village. The prospect of debt and of impending exposure was now added to his anxieties, for there was no room for doubt as to Martha Royle's meaning, and he shuddered to think of his wife and her two false teeth in the hands of this scandal-loving gossip. Johnty made straight for home, and somewhat roughly demanded his supper. His plate of porridge was placed before him, and by its side, on a little white plate, was set a fragrant roasted apple, and his wife playfully plucked at his beard, and called him owd grumpy, in a merry and altogether irresistible way. But Johnty was in no mood for sport, and after eating his porridge, he left the apple as a silent protest against extravagance, and went out again, for if the truth must be told, he was afraid to stay alone with his wife just then. Somehow, when Beckside men were in trouble, they seemed to gravitate by a sort of natural law towards the clog shop, and so the minder, after walking aimlessly up and down the road past the chapel two or three times, turned in at Jabe's. "'Well, as made out on em?' he asked as he entered, but Jabe was not at his bench as he expected, and turning towards the fireplace, he saw the clogger sitting before the fire, and the clogs of some invisible wearer projecting out of the nook. "'What art talking about?' asked Jabe, in answer to Johnty's question. "'Them out clogs o' mine. Has been able for to make out on em. "'Well, if o' han, o'm about to ony money Lancashire as could, "'and if tha brings em here again, I'll chuck em on the fire.' And Jabe's short leg was riding up and down across the other at a frantic rate, whilst his lips pursed out and his eyebrows bristled quite threateningly. "'I'll pay thee for em on Saturday,' replied Johnty very humbly. "'Aye, if thou doesn't forget. But come here with thee. Oh, want thee.' And the clogger moved to another seat to make room for the minder. "'What's come o'er thee?' he demanded as Johnty sank into a seat. "'Thou used go in for the fanciest clugsy beckside afore thou were wed. What's up with thee?' Johnty had recently fallen into the habit of feigning avariciousness and worldly cuteness as a cover for his wife's extravagance, and so he answered with an attempt at a cunning wink. "'A chap as has his way to mak has to be careful nowadays. Now, I've gan o'er smoking. It's wasteful,' he added, as Jay passed him a corpulent brown effigy of punch, which served the cloggery as a tobacco jar. The clogger cast upon Johnty, a slow, comprehensive, but quietly contemptuous look, as he said, "'Oh, thou started a scrattin', as ta? Then that'll be where they hasna paid thy pew rent this last two quarters.' Johnty felt there was something ominous in the clogger's tones, but he prepared to brave it out, and replied, "'Oh, well, I'll fotch it up when we go on full time again, but if a chap's to mak out art, he is to take core of his brass than o's. Oh yeah, the tax cow tay to the factory. Oh, I reckon that'll be to save tay waiter money, continued Jabe, but though the tone was natural, it increased Johnty's misgivings. Aye, he answered very slowly. Oh, 
all i can cow tay best i knows what makes me sweet so jabe gave a most mysterious grunt and then after a few long deliberate pulls at his pipe he looked steadily into the fire and shaking his grey fringed head said with great impressiveness it's an awful thing when a christian mon starts a lying jonathan the minder winced flushed angrily and then demanded lying who's lying the clogs protruding from the chimney corner crossed themselves as an indication of quickened interest but jabe sat still ignoring johnty's question at length turning and looking the minder straight in the face he said thou knows as well as aw know that all thy brass goes to bay fine feathers for yon fine brid o thine who says so cried johnty and there was anger and fear and pathetic expostulation in his voice as he went on you are talking like that and you're no nowt about it there isn't a cleaner willinger quieter wench i the clough and i've ne'er yerd a say a word agin the worst on you you ought to be shamed o yourselves there was a low whistle of surprise from far into the chimney presumably from the wearer of the obtruding clogs then jabe waving johnty back into his seat said very mildly for him oh, i'm sorry for thee lad reet enough but way doesn't thou oughter it ah conna cried poor johnty and instantly could have bitten his tongue out as he discovered he had given himself away thou can be the mester in thy own ass surely came from out of the chimney and sam speck's face became visible through the smoke as he eagerly leaned forward ay as thou used to be said jabe without looking at him and at this reminder of his bygone domestic slavery sam became invisible again except so far as his legs were concerned then jabe began with slow carefulness to recharge his pipe saying as he did so who's a likely wench as fur as aw know but women's like horses the better they are the more they want and the bit there's nowt to do but put thee foot down and be a mon there was such unusual gentleness in jabe's voice that johnty encouraged to be confidential leaned forward and said with a tremor in his voice jabe who's as good as who's pratty there isn't a better wife in the countryside then o'er o've getten to say is that going to reet road to spiler or tell thee women conna stand it then sam recovering from his rebuff joined in the conversation and soon johnty was listening to story after story of the humiliating sufferings which men had brought on themselves by giving way to their wives sam's personal reminiscences being of a specially harrowing description all this worked on poor johnty's well-prepared mind and he saw more clearly than ever where he had missed his way this thought dwelt the longer in his mind because it transferred the blame of the past to his own shoulders and helped him to believe that in adopting the advice of his friends he would be really consulting his wife's best interests as he went home his spirits rose it would only be one short sharp struggle and then it was for susie's own good and would prevent worse happening in the future he was a man and it was cowardly to shirk his responsibilities all this together with the ingrained hatred of extravagance in which he had been trained and his keen sense of wounded pride at the discovery that he and his wife were the village talk decided him 
to tap the bull by the horns, as he phrased it, and end the matter that very night. There would be a storm, he expected, the first of their married life. Susie was more than his match in argument, and he felt that the only thing to do was to turn bully for an hour, as the easiest way of settling his difficulty. Long Ben was standing at his garden gate, smoking in the twilight as he passed, and it came into Jonty's head to consult his neighbour on the matter in hand. But remembering Ben's mildness of temper, he feared that a counsel of gentleness would be given, which would frustrate all. So he passed quickly on, and nerving himself to his great task, he opened the door with a noisy rattle, to keep himself up to sticking point, and stepped firmly across the threshold. The house was in darkness, except for the red glow of the firelight, and looking round for his wife, he found her lying on a short sofa which she had drawn near the fire. She was fast asleep. Now in picturing to himself what he would do and say when he got home, Jaunty had never imagined the possibility of his wife's being asleep, and when he found her in this condition, he was quite nonplussed. He paused a moment or two, reached up to the high mantelpiece and got hold of a candle, then hesitated and put it down again, and turning his back to the fire, stood looking at his little wife. She was in deep slumber and looked somewhat tired. Her small, well-poised head was thrown back a little. The perfect white of her skin gleamed in the firelight. The almost classically regular features were softened into repose, and the unhooked top of her dress gave glimpses of a round snowy neck, whilst her black hair drooped a little and almost covered a tiny white ear. She wore a light print dress, a very uncommon garment for a minder's wife's everyday use in those times, but which Susie had made herself and put on for her husband's pleasure, never dreaming how it might strike him. But Jaunty never saw the dress. He was looking down upon the unconscious Susie with a world of warring thoughts passing through his brain. As he looked, he held his breath. Then he bent down and nearly touched her. Then he straightened himself again, heaved a great sigh, and finally, whilst his grey eyes gleamed again, he cried under his breath, "Eh, wench, but the heart bonny! And then he bent down again, until his breath touched her hair, and murmured thickly, Bless thee! The sleeping woman moved a little, and Jaunty hastily drew back, while Susie tossed into sight, plump round little arm, on which was a ridiculously small hand, adorned by a wedding ring. Somehow the ring attracted the minder's attention. He stepped forward and knelt down on a mat by the sofa side, for Susie was above sanded floors. Then he bent over and kissed the ring, murmuring as he did so, Oh, do it again if I had to do it to eat. Aye, or do it if that cost me ten times as much. Bless thee, bless thee. He noticed that he was keeping the light from his wife's face, so he moved to get it on again, and then stood over the sleeping form, regarding it intently. "'Who's welly like an angel?' he whispered. "Eh, there's nowt for wrong at the back of a face like that.' Then he moved round to the other side of the sofa to get a different angle of admiration, and standing here, he cried under his breath, "'If who hadn't a head some bit of a fort, who'd a been a gradely angel, and o' should ne'er a known her?' Then he began to pray. 
clasping his hands and turning his face towards the ceiling he said lord aw took her for better or for wur and theer's so much of the better about her aw'll ne'er mention the little bit o' wur any more let owd bachelors and empeck widowers say what they na mind aw winna aw winna and then he stooped down and picking up his sleeping wife as if she had been a baby he carried her held her to his heart upstairs and placing her gently on the bed and solemnly kissing the still placid face he cried bless her who's chep at ony price End of chapter 8